Home by Bart Meehan Memories of Canberra In December 1926, a few months before we moved to Canberra, there'd been a murder in the workers' camp at Capitol Hill. A man named Jack Miley was stabbed by Charlie Goodrich when he stepped in to stop a fight. Even though Canberra was a dry town then, the workers brought grog in from Queanbeyan, so all the men involved were drunk. Goodrich told the jury that he had struck out when Miley grabbed him, not realising who it was and thinking that he was being attacked. He regretted his action, he said, because Jack was a quiet and good fellow, and they'd never had a cross word. The jury found him not guilty, but it wasn't the acquittal that worried my mother. It was the words of the judge. Len, you can read what he said right there in the paper. It does seem a terrible thing that men, hard-working and industrious men, can reduce themselves to the state of wild beasts by drink for the purpose of amusement. Men reduced to the state of wild beasts. How can we live in a place like that? It was an accident, M. The man said he was sorry. Small comfort for Mr Miley. He's just as dead. It's not the sort of place we should be taking Johnny. It's no place to raise a family. You're overreacting. After all, it's the nation's capital. Government will be there. That's no recommendation. I don't understand why we have to move. We've been happy in Melbourne since we came over. I've told you there's no choice. My department's moving and we either go or I'll have to find another job. And that was that. My father had to move and we had to follow. When we arrived, we were allocated a house in Ainsley, and I was enrolled in Thlopia Park School. My father bought me a second-hand bike so I could make my own way there, and when my mother fussed, he told her that falling off was the best way to learn. He was right. After a day of scraped knees and bruises, I had my balance. There wasn't much in Canberra then, a few thousand people living in the suburbs scattered through the bush and there was a sense of uncertainty in the city, with the major building program winding down and hundreds of men being laid off. Every day there were families leaving, never to return. Still, my father and I settled in well. He had his work and I had school and daily adventures in a new city to occupy me, but it was harder for my mother. It was a company town, and she was a shy woman who didn't make friends easily. I'm sure she was often very lonely, though she never let on. Instead, she looked after the family, and in the evening she'd sit in her chair by the fireplace, reading the poems that she had been collecting in a leather-bound journal. The days are cold, the nights are long, the north wind sings a doleful song. Then hush again upon my breast, all merry things are now at rest save thee, my pretty love. The kitten sleeps upon the hearth, the crickets long have ceased their mirth, and there's nothing stirring in the house save one wee 
hungry, nibbling mouse. My mother used to read that to me, Johnny. I'd be tucked under the blanket with the wind rattling the windows and she'd stroke my hair until I fell asleep. I loved the stories she told me about her childhood, about her mother and father, about how she and her sister wandered the hills around the family's farm or heard voices in the graveyard when no one was there. But as happy as she was with her memories, my father would just shrug away every question about his past, telling me that we hadn't come halfway around the world to look back. I was an only child, the product of a difficult birth that had removed the possibility of siblings. Perhaps that was why Mother spoiled me and why I loved her so deeply. An affection that didn't fade as I grew up. My father, on the other hand, was a distant man, even by the standards of someone shaped from a hard Yorkshire childhood. He was prone to long silences when we were together, and when he did speak it was usually to issue a command that I accepted while backing out of the room. His only other significant form of communication was to read aloud from the newspaper when he had found something that infuriated him. 11th of December, 1928. To the editor, the Cumbra Times. Sir, in recent weeks the people of Cumbra have been pestered by two aeroplanes. I understand there are air force machines in which budding hinklers from Duntroon are being taught to conquer the air. These machines fly far too low and practice their stunts far too close to the houses. The one I saw this morning was flying no more than 40 feet above the rooftops in forest. It would be impossible for a pilot to recover from a mishap at that height, and his misfortune would undoubtedly be visited on the innocents hanging out their laundry below him. Oh, that's absolutely right, him. The bloody young idiots have no consideration for others. Watch your language in front of the boy. I'll say it again and he should remember it. They're bloody fools carry on like that, especially after what happened last year. Last year was the opening of Parliament House. Though my father was unimpressed by ceremonial events and the adulation heaped on politicians and royals, my mother had insisted we all go because it was history being made. I remember being in the middle of the crowd, standing on tiptoes, but still not able to see what was going on. Instead, I had to rely on the descriptions of the people around me. There's Mr Bruce, and doesn't the Duchess look beautiful? Then Nellie Melba sang God Save the King, and everyone stood to attention, except my father. He was looking back over his shoulder, and when the national anthem finished, he shouted, Stop that! Let them be! What is it, Len? The police. They're trying to move a couple of old fellows along. The old fellows were two Aboriginals, wearing dusty jackets and trousers that obviously offended the officials. Leave them alone! Be careful. They'll arrest you next. I don't care if they do. It's not proper, Em. They've got as much right to be here as anyone else. My father kept shouting, and as others joined in, the police, stunned by the protest, stepped back, and the crowd pushed the two old men forward towards the stage, cheering as they did. I looked at my father... I remember thinking for the first time that he was a hero. After the Duke opened Parliament with a golden key, there was food and entertainment, including a fly-pass by the Air Force. As we watched the planes banking in salute, 
One of them just fell out of the sky and crashed into Cork Hill near the YWCA marquee. My father told us to stay where we were and then ran towards the wreckage. The pilot was still alive, but he was in a bad way. Father helped lift him out of the cockpit and into the back of the car that took him to the emergency hospital that had been set up at my school in Tilopia Park. We found out later he died that night. As we walked home, my mother asked him if the pilot had said anything. Just that one minute he was in the sky and the next he wasn't. You know, during the war we'd seen them jumping out of burning planes and they'd hang there for a moment waving their arms. It was like they were trying to fly. I suppose it was something when there was nothing else to be done. I'd never heard him talk about the war before, and it would be years before he ever mentioned it again. I'm stepping out with a memory tonight to paint the town the way we used to do. I'll dine at the old cafe where we had so much fun and order cocktails for two instead of the usual one. The first letter that my father published in the newspaper came after a politician told Parliament that public servants had a very easy life but still whinged while the rest of Australia was doing it tough. Dear Sir, as I consider myself a typical case of what the lower-paid public servant has to endure in hardships in Canberra, I provide here the expenses of myself and my family consisting of wife and one child. From a fortnightly salary of £11.14, shillings, I pay rent of £3.03. Three shillings. I then pay one shilling for my bus fares to and from the office, ten shillings for tobacco, four shillings for lodge dues, one shilling for a daily copy of your newspaper, and six and tenpence for rates. A total of four pounds, five shillings and tenpence, leaving seven pounds for the necessities of life. Entertainment is entirely out of the question, unless we make it ourselves, and fruit, a staple for a healthy child, is often beyond my means. For example, pears were selling for three and a half pence each in Canberra shops today. If these figures don't demonstrate the hardship faced every day by my family and those of other public servants, some of whom are worse off, then I suggest our politicians give up the comfort of Parliament and spend a week walking in my shoes. He wrote dozens of letters over the years, and my mother pasted them in an album. I would go through it as a child, hoping that they'd reveal something about him but there were no insights to be found in his frustrations. And in the end, I had to accept that some people will always remain a mystery. I grew up with the city, finished school, and with my father's help found a job as a bank teller. I went to the dances in Albert Hall, and because I was sober, when many others weren't, my card was always full. My mother said it was only a matter of time before I found the right girl and settled down but then war was declared in Europe. Mother cried when I told her I'd enlisted, but then accepted it, as mothers of young men have always done. Father nodded and stared out the window for a time. Then he turned and walked over to the cabinet 
I suppose we'd better have a drink. I'd never had a drink with my father, let alone eighteen-year-old single malt, so I wasn't going to tell him I didn't like whisky. After we'd emptied our glasses, he shook my hand. You'll see things a man should never see. Just look after yourself and don't do anything foolish. It'd kill your mother if something happened to you. And he was right. I saw things that are still with me now. My mother wrote every week without fail, and her letters, filled with mundane and trivial details of life in wartime Canberra, pushed out the war for a while. Dear Johnny, I am sure you would like me to call you John now you are a soldier, but you will always be Johnny to me. Life here is much as you would expect. All the talk is of the war. Yesterday, when I was on the bus, a man stood up and scolded some young women who were discussing troop movements and the news from their boyfriends overseas. You do not know if the enemy is listening, he told them, and we all looked around to see if there was a German spy hiding under a seat. It was very amusing, and we do need a laugh these days. Some of the stories you hear are terribly sad. I was reading in this morning's paper about an old woman who had walked all the way from Victoria looking for her son. He apparently worked in Canberra before the war. He had been killed in Italy, but she simply couldn't accept it. Your father is busy, like all government workers these days. Of course, he still has time to write his letters. I've enclosed his latest. Do take care of yourself, Johnny. Head down and only volunteered to do the paperwork. I shook the clipping out of the envelope and read it. Dear Sir, I wish to register my emphatic protest against the ridiculous severity of lighting of motor vehicles order number 11 and the continuation of the complete blackout of streets in Canberra. Having fitted the prescribed headlight masks to my car, I found that it was impossible to see any other vehicles or person on the blacked-out streets. This constitutes a serious danger to all the traffic and pedestrians, and it is likely that there will be far more casualties from the road accidents than will ever occur from air raids. My father, silent and withdrawn in everything else, was still fighting his small battles in the middle of a world war. In early 1942, I was shot in the knee and captured. The German doctors did a reasonable job of patching me up, and then bundled me off to a prison camp. A gammy leg meant any attempt at a great escape was out of the question. So, for the next three years, I did whatever I could to stop the boredom. I helped build a golf course, I learned very bad French and Italian, and made cricket balls from the string that wrapped Red Cross parcels. Then, late in 1944, I received a letter. Dear John, I'm sorry to write and tell you that Mother passed away this week. It was a heart, so mercifully it was very quick. I found her sitting in front of the fire when I came home with a poetry book open in her lap. I've buried her in a quiet spot close to a grove of trees and have ordered a nice stone. Take care of yourself 
I know that she would have been thinking of you before she left us. Nothing left for me Of days that used to be They're just a memory Among my souvenirs After the war, I made my way slowly back to Canberra, arriving late in 1946. My father picked me up at the station, and as we drove home I noticed how much the city had grown. At the house he made some sandwiches that we ate in silence, and when we were finished I told him I was going up to the grave. Do you want to come with me? I go up on Sunday. I always go up on Sundays. All right. I'll go by myself. Can I ask you something? Aye. Do you miss her? Do I miss her? Now there's a question. You know, there was this one time during the war, the Germans were dropping shells on us, and I was running for cover, sure I was going to die, when I noticed a fellow buried up to his waist in the mud. Couldn't leave him there, so I went to help. But as I got closer, I realised he wasn't buried. A shell had blown him enough, and there was just enough life left in him to smile at me. Then he was gone. That troubled me for a while, but then every day there was something worse. So I just learned to get on with it. That's what you have to do. Do I miss her? I think about her. I know that. She was a good woman, your mother. A good woman. I'll go up to the grave with you this afternoon. And that was it. As close as he could come to saying he loved her out loud. I stayed in Canberra, and a couple of years later I married a girl I met at a dance. She was expecting our first child when my father died in 1952. I buried him next to my mother, and after the funeral I stood over their graves and read from her journal. Rest, for your eyes are weary, girl. You have driven the worst away. The ghost of the man that I might have been is gone from my heart today. We'll live for life, and the best it brings till our twilight shadows fall. My heart grows brave, and the world, my girl, is a good world after all. I thought about them, lying together in this quiet spot, while a city grew up around them. Then my wife squeezed my hand and said, Time to go home. You've been listening to Home by Bart Meehan, Memories of Canberra, with David Clapham, Rachel Clapham 
and Tony Turner. It was directed by Tony Turner.